So let me invite you to open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 5. Title of the message is Good Sex, Bad Sex, in the Power of Jesus. Let me just say, by way of introduction before we read our text, this is a, um, this is a really vital topic. Um, and we need to talk about it. God's Word talks about it, so we talk about it without apology. Um, we want to learn the wisdom of God in all areas of life. and Everything that He's willing to speak to, we're willing to listen. And we're more than willing to listen. We're eager to listen to what His Word tells us, even about these, these things. Now, let me just say, because we're just going to scratch the surface, I mean, there are so many applications. There are so many sensitivities in the neighborhood of discussions about sex and sexuality I want to kind of talk about resources because we're not going to get every place this morning. So we're going to put some resources up on the screen and I'll talk through just a few of these so that you can follow up and dig deeper into some things that might be closer to where you need some grace and some help and some perspective. So first of all, free mini books on counseling near the Brook Store. This is a few of them. You might see them near the Brook Store. We've got uh, a kind of a an area there where there's a lot of these little booklets, and they're written on all manner of subjects, but some of them are about sexuality. So here's one, sex before marriage, how far is too far? And you can see that's, you know, it's not, it's not a ton of material, but it's really helpful. What's wrong with a little porn when you're single? They have another one on what's wrong with a little porn when you're married. Raising sexually healthy kids. This is just a sampling. They've got six or seven of them. They might be all out, but we've got a, a bundle of them coming this week as well. So look for those next week in that area near the Brook Store, and you'll benefit from these. Uh, the rest of these books might be helpful. Uh, you could order them on Amazon. So that next one, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, just great reminders for married couples. What are we doing? What, what has God called us to? What's his design in our marriage? Maybe you're walking toward marriage, and you want to know what is it that we're walking towards? What does God's word say about his design in marriage? That's a great little book. Seven, next book, Seven Myths About Singleness from Sam Albury, a, a beautiful, biblical, and positive vision of singleness and what what the rich single life looks like by God's grace. The next book, Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault, written by Justin Holcomb and Lindsay Holcomb. They write wonderful books in areas that are so much, so much grace, so much tenderness, so much healing is needed in these areas, and they write with, with great clarity to these, these topics. And then the last one, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. Yuan uh, was gay and agnostic, and then he came to faith in Christ, and since then, for the past 10 years, he's been teaching the Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, just speaks with great compassion, great insight to a whole raft of issues, everything from gender confusion, sexual orientation, same-sex attraction, to uh, a theology of singleness, a theology of marriage, God's design, a, a really, really helpful, well-written book. So that's some resources for you to, to potentially follow up on our time here. All right, hopefully you found Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public square? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. 
A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes and he considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities will trap him. He will become tangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there is no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. Here's the challenge. Um, Romans chapter 12 exhorts the church to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Not to do one or the other, but to do both everyone weeping with those who are weeping, everyone rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And this passage, as you might have discerned even when I was reading it, has both. It has a, it has a celebration of the joys of marital love, even marital lovemaking specifically. So there's something to celebrate in this passage. In that way, it would be appropriate for us, have, studying a, a text like this, it would be appropriate for there to be smiles in the room, appropriate to be laughter in the room because we're rejoicing with those who rejoice in this good gift of God that he's given in the context of marriage. But this passage also, this is impossible to miss from what we just read, it also has pain in it. It has sexual brokenness, it has regret. In it. So, so before we're done with our time studying this, I expect we'll experience a little bit of both. We'll experience some of this sense of rejoicing and how good God is in this way to give us this gift. And there will also be pain involved. But that's what families do, right? Families, families dance at the wedding of a family member and families wrap their arms in a time of a family member's loss. We, we do that. We speak both languages in the life of the church because we're a family. We're ready to do both as opportunity affords it. And we've got opportunity in this area. We need to be in each other's lives, helping, serving, supporting, encouraging, dancing. You know, when it comes to the joys of sex, when those things are discussed, in some ways it leads to um, a ditch on either side of the road, right? So you can either pull toward one side and, and you've got discussions about the topic of sex that are vulgar and coarse and suggestive and evocative. And then you've got on the other side sort of overcompensating for that. You have discussions about sex that are um, stifled, um, overlaid with with super spiritual ideas, religious feeling of just, hey, don't, don't get into that, don't, don't enjoy that, right? So my hope is that we can try a third option. My hope is that we can rejoice in the goodness of God and we can feel the gravity of these issues. So let's be a family today. Can we just be a family? And we need to be a family because I would never talk about these things with strangers. So it's, it's gonna require, so we're all family. Here we go. You ready? Three truths. Number one, sex is God's gift to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. That is a biblical conviction. If we as the church of Jesus Christ would bring on board that truth into our own lives, it would transform the way that we live as Christians in this world. Just that one truth. It's God's gift. It's to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. So um, I gave the talk to my boys about 10 years ago and um, the girls were out, they were running errands, and uh, 
I thought the boys are, they're not super young, they'll understand, but they're young enough that maybe I'll catch it before the world gets to define sex for them, which I would recommend that you do as well. Let's get out ahead of it and let's show them God's definition of what this is. That was my effort. And so I brought them into the kitchen. I said, guys, we're going to talk about some stuff. And I grabbed a piece of paper and I said, I'm going to write a word on this piece of paper and I want you to tell me what it means. And I wrote S E. X, and they started giggling immediately. And they were, you know, trading furtive glances and all of this. And they're fumbling for words to try to come up with what, what they think this means. And so I explained the meaning of sex and what God intended for sex. Then I talked about how sex actually works. And I proceeded to then draw the worst representation of human sexual anatomy in history, and it was, all, my wife came home and flinched when she saw the picture, and I snapped a photo, and I still have it. It's, it's not coming up on the screen, so don't, don't, don't wait for that moment. That is not happening. Uh, but I think it actually went fairly well. The conversation went fairly well. We talked about these things, and I didn't want sex to be associated with something shameful. And you know what I realized? I was already too late. The, one of the first things that the boys said, and they were kind of putting their thoughts together, is sex is, uh, they said something like, sex is what bad people do when they take their clothes off. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Every time dad yells, hurry up, flip the channel, what are people doing? Taking one another's clothes off half the time is what's happening when we say, hurry up and turn it off. And so in their minds, they create a category. When a man and a woman take their clothes off, that's dirty. That's wrong. People don't do that. Christians don't do that. And so I already had to overcome an obstacle and say, sex is God's idea. It got hijacked by the world, but God gets to import the content of what sex really is, the beauty of what sex is. And it is a beautiful thing. But it is a delicate beauty, and it's not to be handled roughly. It's to be handled with great care. You know, what becomes clear at the outset of our passage is this. It's in your notes. The Bible isn't prudish about sex. The Bible isn't prudish about sex. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Let me just notify us all. It's not about water. Verse 15 is not about a well. If you build a well in the developing world, don't put this verse on it. This verse is about sex. It has nothing to do with real water, right? So he's, he's implying that. So, but if we missed it there, it becomes super obvious that he's talking about sex in verse 19. Verse 19, a loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. If you're wondering where did the well go, uh, we're in the well in verse 19. The Bible isn't prudish about sex. Next point in our notes is God designed sex to be pleasurable. To be pleasurable. You know, God, you ever think about this? God could have made food and not giving us taste buds. That's a very real possibility. It could just be, hey, you know, eat this, you know, this mess 
that I've placed before you, it will sustain you. It's not going to taste like anything, but it will sustain you. But he, he gave us taste buds to enjoy the food that nourishes us. And in the same way, God could have made, you know, the two becoming one flesh happen by some other action. It could have been, you know, you're reciting your vows and you're doing a secret handshake. Like, it could have been that, and then you take a pregnancy test after that, and it's like, it worked, right? It could have been any number. God is a creative God with infinite possibilities. He could have made the two become one flesh happen any which way, but praise be to God for his goodness and grace. It's not a secret handshake and reciting vows, praise be to God for his grace, he's given the gift of romance and even physicality. The, the Bible celebrates, without blushing, celebrates the pleasure of marital intimacy. You think about it, in your Bible is a whole book of the Bible your parents won't let you read until you got a photo ID. Right, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, it is a celebration, a back and forth celebration of lovers talking about married love and what married people do and they're talking about it right there and it's endorsed and stamped by God himself. It says, put that in the word, that's gonna be really good. He put it in the Bible for us. Now these lovers in that book, they're, they're talking about it and, and as you're reading, you wanna say, we all hear this like millions of us are reading every word that you guys are writing back and forth. This is super awkward, right? You almost want to notify them that we're, our eyes are on these texts going back and forth sort of between these lovers. I, <laughs> uh, last week I sent a text to a friend of mine that was meant for my wife. And um, that friend is actually Samford professor, Dr. J.D. Payne. And uh, it was, thank heavens it was appropriate because he instantly responded with, huh, and just got sinking feeling. What did I send JD that was meant for my wife, right? There are these exchanges of love, and it's unembarrassing, and it's beautiful, and it's appropriate. And while the little ones aren't here, let's go ahead and read from the forbidden book, Song of Solomon, for just a second. Here's Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Listen to this. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Let me just pause for a moment. Um, <laughs> so not all the metaphors communicate today, right? It, this might not be your go-to phrase, but I'm telling you, it worked 3,000 years ago in an epic way. You can tell because she writes back and she's all over it. She loves what he's saying. Tell me the thing about the flock of goats. Tell it to me again. She, she's all over that, right? Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing. So you got clean teeth. I love that about you. Each one bearing twins and none has lost its young. You have all your teeth. I, I love that you have a mouth full of clean teeth. It's beautiful to me. Verse three, your lips are like a scarlet cord and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it, all of them shields of warriors. That is poetry, right? He could have just said, your neck is super long. <laughs> it's, it's really elegantly long. 
But he's saying there's a dignity. You could hang the shields of a thousand warriors. You are a woman of elegance. You are royalty. And then he keeps moving downwards. Verse 5. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Again, we might quibble about whether these are the best metaphors for today, but this is clear. This man is delighting in the woman he loves, and he is adoring every sequential inch of this woman, the wife of his youth. He loves her. He looks her in the eyes and sings a song about her eyes. He looks at her lips, and he's just singing. He's rejoicing over her. He's not objectifying her. She is not insulted. She doesn't feel demeaned by this. She responds with a few words of her own about him. And then you can sense even the security of this love. This is not just animal physicality. She says, I am his and he is mine. I am secure in this man's embrace. He loves me thoroughly. We are for one another forever. This, friends, what happens in Song of Solomon is what happens when romantic heat is kept warm in the furnace of covenant. You take that fire out of the furnace and it burns the house to the ground. You put the fire in the furnace of covenant marriage and you stoke it as often as possible and it heats the house and that's what you have in Song of Solomon. You have a warm house because you have a stoked fire of married love and affection. It is mutual. She talks as much as he does. Now this is why in our passage, look at verse 19 of chapter 5, of Proverbs 5, verse 19 could be translated, if, you've, if you have the English Standard Version, it is translated, be intoxicated always with her love. You know that same exact Hebrew word there is used in Isaiah chapter 28 for a drunken man staggering down the street. The point is, be crazy in love. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And I would love to spend the whole message on the joy side of the equation, but our text moves on. Number two, sex has been distorted by sin. Sex has been distorted by sin. So if you know the story of the Bible, you know that God made Eve from Adam's side and he puts Adam to sleep and then Adam wakes up and he sees her there and he celebrates her And both of them, the text says, were naked and not ashamed. They won't reach for fig leaves. They won't reach for any covering until after sin, after the fall. There's this new sense. What is this? What is this sense? It's shame, and it's new in the world because they've just sinned against God. But before that, everything was perfect innocence. There's no shame. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. But then they sinned against God, and they brought in this whole host of dark realities, new realities came pouring into the world, including sexual brokenness of all kinds. A story came out of the BBC News some years back. A man with a series of crisis events that were connected to each other. He, he had suffered a heart attack, nearly died. And then his wife left him later that same year. But you read the story and you find out that those two are connected that she left him because of what triggered the heart attack. And what triggered the heart attack was he was traveling abroad 
and he summoned a prostitute to his hotel. And the door, he heard the knock at the door, and he opened the door, and standing there, the prostitute was his own daughter. And he had a heart attack. And it, it shook him to the core, and it shook his marriage. There's a lot of sexual brokenness in this world. The porn industry is exploding around us. You don't have to go find it. It finds you. It comes to you. Unbidden, unsolicited, it comes to find you. Uh, the first time I was offered pornographic material, I was a little boy, I was probably eight years old, I was riding my, my bicycle down my street, and I saw, I can still picture the house, I remember the house. House on the left-hand side, I didn't know these boys, but they were inviting me to a little party over there, and they had a magazine in the center of them, and they said, do you want to see a naked woman? And I didn't know them, and I felt kind of creeped out by them, I wasn't sure, I tr- they were a little older than me, so I kept riding. I didn't see pornography that day, but I saw it eventually, it wasn't long after that that the boy across my street, who I knew really well, and his dad had some girly magazines, and he said, guess what, I found, I found something. And I went over, and I still remember. And, and it opened up a whole world. I couldn't unsee it the next day. And now here starts this new, this new battle, and it's an everyday battle, and it was an everyday losing battle. You feel just this sexual brokenness and this sense of shame and now you don't need a friend whose dad has a magazine smartphone tv a computer wi-fi you can get it anywhere in addition to the distortions proliferated by the porn industry we have in our culture we have a hookup culture we have casual sex sex on the cheap friends with benefits cohabitation increasing numbers of christian college students in our city were polled recently and many of the christian college students didn't know that it's biblically wrong to shack up with your boyfriend or girlfriend they don't have biblical categories for the wisdom of god as it relates to sexuality and so what's going to come More brokenness is going to come. That's what's going to come. Just more. Boys in schoolyards, young boys will find out, will have the audacity to go walk up to a girl at an ice cream shop and say, you're really cute, can I have your cell number? And if she gives it to him, oftentimes he's going to ask her to send pictures. He doesn't even know this girl. He doesn't even know her name. He got a number and he's going to ask her for pictures and he's going to send a few of his own. And that's happening among young boys and young girls, seeing things they won't unsee, things that bring shame into their own lives and and hearts. It's not right. Our world is broken. And our culture is working really, really hard in the sexual revolution to convince ourselves that sexuality can be given away at will. With impunity, there's no downside. You can just keep giving and giving and giving. You can let your streams, as Proverbs 5 says, run abroad, let your streams run through the city and there's no repercussions. But friends, biblically speaking, there is no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. If we think that there's such a thing as casual sex, we're deceiving ourselves. And here's the reality that the Bible brings to bear on our minds as Christians, as is there is, if I can put it this way, there is a deep magic in sexual union. It unifies. 
to become one flesh, not just in the garden before the fall, to become one flesh, because that's where it's cited originally. Adam knew Eve. There was a knowing, there was an intimacy, and there was a two becoming one in that marital intimacy. But it's not only there when things were right and innocent before the fall. You come all the way over to the book of Corinthians, and Paul is writing a letter to a sexually confused people. And what did he say? He said, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. That is sobering. What's he saying? He's saying sex is not skin on skin. Sex is a mystery. And that's why this father, you look down in verse 20, and that's why this father's pleading. He's saying, son, please, please hear your dad. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? Can I say to the kids who are allowed in the room because you're old enough, save yourself unnecessary pain and regret by believing the wisdom of God's word about your sexuality. Believe what God says. Have great friendships. Don't defraud one another. Don't touch what isn't yours. It's not yours. Keep your hands off of it. Respect your brothers and sisters. Contend for the best of your brothers and sisters. Make war against your lust. Make war against your temptation. Bring truth to bear, right? Get God's word in your grip and let it get you in its grip. Let the truth set you free moment by moment, day by day. Young people, live unafraid and unashamed of the gospel. Look, but there is... There is so much distortion in this that even it sneaks up in surprising places. So the so-called purity culture within the church, it doesn't always bear good fruit in actuality. When talking to our kids, we can end up confusing gospel-centered Christianity with purity-centered Christianity. And that's two very different things. What ends up happening is we've created this shame culture around the whole sex thing. There's just this cloud of shame. Anybody who gets near it ends up in the cloud of shame. Author Julie Slattery writes extensively, a recognized authority on these matters, and she tells a story, sad story of a young man and a young woman who kept themselves from marriage. They were both virgins on their, on their honeymoon night. They go off, they go to their hotel, they enjoy one another in intimacy for the very first time, and she goes into the bathroom, throws up, and weeps all night. Why? Because in her mind, this act is what she had been carefully avoiding in order to be accepted by God. And this was a dirty thing. It's always been dirty. And she could never disassociate sex from dirty, even on her honeymoon. And you can see when you hear a story like that, Satan has been working overtime. Our enemy has been very, very 
busy in this space. Let's be honest. When Proverbs 5.22 talks about sexual sin trapping us and the sense of being tangled in ropes that we can't get out of, there are a lot of people in this room who would say, if you felt safe and you were around people you trusted, you would say, that's me. I'm that tangled person. I'm trapped. I can't fight my way out. Please help. I'm dying. I'm stuck in here. I'm in bondage. I can't get free. And friend, if that is you, I have really good news. Number three, Jesus makes all things new. That's my favorite thing to say every single Sunday. Jesus makes all things new. You don't make all things new. Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. That is glorious. That is good news. We have good news. You might say, you know, I say that to you, and maybe you're not believing it. Maybe you're saying, Matt, just look down at the passage. Could we just look back at the passage? Verse 21, follow along, Matt. For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes. He's seen all this stuff I've been into. He considers all his past. That's not good either. Verse 22, a wicked man's iniquities, my sexual iniquities, trapping me, and he will become tangled in the ropes of his own sin. It sounds prophetic. He's going to be tangled, and he's going to die, and he's going to be lost. In this passage, you might be saying to me, Matt, the sexual sinner dies. The sexual sinner's trapped, tangled, and dies because of his stupidity, because of his foolishness. To which I would simply say, hold on, because God has options. There is a twist ending in the biblical story that sinners could not have expected. What if you found out that God's plan all along from the beginning was to rescue sinful broken, very broken people, if that was the plan from the beginning? What if it were possible for him to come and step into your shoes and actually take your story in a different direction, in a hope-filled direction? What if he came to earth as a man, as a substitute, and got trapped in your ropes, got tangled up in your ropes, hung on your cross, died for your sin? What if he did that? And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enters into this world as a man, takes on human flesh, bore our sins in his body on the tree, all of them, the ones we're willing to bring out into the light and the ones that we prefer to keep hidden. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died our death. He conquered our enemies. He condemned your condemnation. He silenced your accuser forever on the cross and then he rose again from the dead and whoever believes in him, whoever runs to him for refuge, this is absolutely mind-boggling. You get his righteousness. You get his purity. It's as if you had been perfectly pure. 
He credits his purity to your account. He credits his acceptance before holy God to your account. That's why Luther called it, it's the great exchange. Who would imagine this? That a perfect, innocent Savior would take all that I've done wrong and place it upon himself and leave it on the ground and then rise again and give me all that he's done right and wrap me in a robe of righteousness that will never wear out. I'll wear it till kingdom come. The gospel, friends, is news, not advice. It's a report. It's not telling you something to do. It's telling you something that's been done, what Jesus has already done. Friends, our gospel is a just-as-I-am-without-one-plea gospel. It's a nothing-in-my-hands-I-bring gospel. It's a Jesus-paid-it-all, all-to-him-I-owe, sin-had-left-a-crimson-stain, he-washed-it-white-as-snow gospel. It's that good. And you know what else? It's not just judicial announcement. It's a personal announcement. It's Jesus saying, I'm not going to withdraw from you. I'm not going to flinch. I saw it, and I'm not walking away. I'm still here. He moves close to sexually broken people. I have a friend who runs a counseling training center in New England. He's a, he's a very brilliant writer very studied in the issues and matters related to counseling. He's a man of unparalleled kindness. And he and I, when we first met each other, we started to exchange and talk, talk stories, and we both found out that we both lost our dad when we were young, and there was an instant bond and connection there. But then we started to explore more. Tell me more of your story. And I found out, here's, here's what I found out. He, he told me that what made the gospel real to him was a porn addiction. And here's how it played out. He said, I was a boy and I was on my home computer in our house, and I was looking at pornography. And he said, I usually always tried to be really attentive to the sounds of doors opening in the house, and I thought I was in the house by myself, and he said, I didn't realize that my dad was standing right behind me while I was looking at this. And he said, the first thing that I knew that about his presence there was his hand on my shoulder, and then he sat down and he left his arm around me and he said very gently so this is what we're into and he said it absolutely broke me he said dad could have gone on a tirade he could have said you're bringing this garbage into my house we've raised you better than that I'm a pastor for goodness sake he said my dad could have absolutely crushed me but he said, the, my father's kindness, my earthly father's kindness led me to repentance. And his dad, in effect, took him by the hand and walked him toward the redemptive power of Jesus. I'll say it again. I said it last week. If the church of Brook Hills becomes a place of mercy and help for broken people, we won't have capacity. Word will get out. That's a place you can go when your life has fallen apart. Those people will show you Jesus. They'll show you mercy. They give great hugs in that church. Word will get out. Okay, can I ask us a question? Brooke Hills, are we, are we safe for returning prodigals? I mean really broken people, not respectable sins, headliners. Are we safe for deeply broken People Often the church doesn't manifest real interest in messy sinners. I read a story, a news report about a woman in Chicago 
She was arrested for pimping out her own child to feed the rest of her family and to put the heat back on in the winter in Chicago. And the police, when they cuffed her up and when they arrested her, they said, why? Why? There's a church just down the street. Why didn't you go to the church? They could have helped you. She said, church? Are you kidding me? She said, I loathe myself. Why would I go to some place where they're even more ashamed of me than I already am of myself? Why would I go to a church? You know, I, I read stories like that and it makes me wonder what's more broken, the world or the church of Jesus Christ. We forget the story. We forget the story we're living in. What's the story we're living in? Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's our story. What a Savior. You, you think about that Savior. You follow him into the pages of the Gospels and you watch him walk up to a promiscuous woman. Men, men are holding stones. It's her execution day. She will lawfully die today. And Jesus unilaterally cancels the execution, sends those guys out the door. And what does he say to her? Yes, he's going to say, go and sin no more. He's going to eventually, after he forgives her, give her a new lease on life. He's going to turn the page in her world and say, go and sin no more. But the first thing he does is say, I'm not here for condemnation. The stones are on the ground and they're gone. Your condemners are gone. It's just me and you here. And he says, this is a safe place. This is a place of forgiveness. And he changes her whole world. We have hope for the shame-ridden and sexually broken. We have hope for the shame-ridden and sexually broken. Uh, I need to press on this a little bit more. Um, what are you going to do if your son or your daughter confesses a struggle with same-sex attraction, what are you gonna do when your daughter comes home from school in tears and says, I was afraid to tell you, but mom, dad, I'm pregnant. You gonna stack shame on that girl? You gonna drive her into the howling wilderness? Or are you gonna pull up a chair wrap your arms around her and show her a grace that will change her thoroughly and open her heart before the Lord. As if shame is a positive power for transformation, right? Like it's a tool. To all of us who are sexually broken, and we got a room full of it, let's just be honest, we got a room full of sexually broken people. We have not come out of this unscathed. I haven't. To all of us who are sexually broken, there is a gospel. <laughs> There's a gospel. There's good news. I don't care what you got yourself into. I don't care what you're into right now. You might say, that is a reckless statement. It is a reckless gospel. A reckless, scandalous gospel. But maybe you thought, the church isn't for me. I'll come and visit. I'm here this morning. I visit every now and then. But, but I don't belong here. The church is for people who have their lives together. Did we fool you that easy? 
Stay around a while. Look beneath the surface and you'll find out there's another story. Find out the real story. Stay long enough to find out the real story. And the real story you're going to find out is the one thing that brings a room full of people together like this to worship the grace and loving God who has poured out his love on us in Christ. The only thing that has brought us together is our deep sin was met by a deeper mercy. That's the real story. I, I, um, I read a story, it was humorous. I'm a dog lover, so I'm a sucker for dog stories. And this was humorous, but it actually got my attention for another reason. Uh, a, a dog got loose and ran away, which happens all the time in our neighborhood. Our dog sometimes gets away. Dog got loose and ran away, didn't come back. Owner puts up a sign in the neighborhood and offers a great, you know, great cash reward for this lost, missing dog. And here's the description of the dog so people could know this is the one that you get the cash reward for. Only got three legs, blind in the left eye, missing his right ear, tail's been broken. He was neutered accidentally by a fence. <laughs> He's almost deaf and answers by the name Lucky. <laughs> and you might think that is the unluckiest Lucky I've ever heard of. It turns out he's not that unlucky. Lucky's a perfect name for this dog. If he, if he is that mangy and that broken and his owner wants to find him and pay a great price for him, Lucky's a perfect name. I'm the mangy dog. God the Father in heaven is the one who's seeking us. And the cross is the ransom price by which he obtains lost people. That is my story. That's your story. You know, this topic makes us yearn for good news, doesn't it? And we have it. We have the good news that we yearn for. The God who has loved us in Christ is the only one who can set us free. He's the one who can show us his good purposes and direct us toward joy. He's the one who can rid us of shame and our disgrace. And the best news is he will. He will. We run to him for refuge and he rescues us.